Uh, this morning, I want to minister to you guys on standing firm. But uh, before we do that, let's go ahead and bow our heads and become the Word. Father, we just thank you for your Word. Father, we thank you that it is sharp and it is true. Father, we thank you that uh, it, is, it is ever active and that it is just as important and effective today as it was 2,000 years ago. Father, I thank you that we would be challenged this morning. Father, that we would uh, not just let this soak in intellectually, Father, but we'd have revelation in our heart of who you are and who we are in you. So, Father, we just thank you for this morning. Thank you for blessing this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise God. So like I said, today we're going to minister, I want to minister to you guys on standing firm. It says, having done all to stand, stand firm is the subtitle, and that's out of uh, a scripture in, in Ephesians 6, and we'll get to that one shortly. But uh, what I want to talk about is I think we've all gone through life feeling like things just aren't moving on our time. Things are taking just a little bit too long. Has anybody felt like that? You're looking at God working in your life, and you're like, man, if this was on my time, we'd be done already. We'd, I mean, God, what's taking you so long? You know, and and we've, we've felt that you know, we'd rather have God move on our timing than his timing because you know, every now and then we get this idea in our head that we know what's best. You know, God, if we, you would just listen, we could get it done, God. Why don't you pay attention to us? And then I think there's times in our lives that, that we feel like that God's kind of forgotten our prom- the promise concerning us. You know, we, we feel like God's spoke something into our lives or he has a promise for us or even a lot of the promises and, and, and stuff that's for each and every one of us. We're wondering why is God taking so long to move in these areas? Why is God, you know, why, is he, why is he being so slow? I mean, I, I know I felt like that at different times in my lives. And I think that there's a couple reasons for this. One... I think it's because when we read the Bible, our, our conception of time is incredibly skewed. How many of you have ever been talking about the Bible, and this is how you, you judge time? And two verses later, a chapter and a half later, you know, we don't, talk, we don't think time, we think in, in chapters and verses, you know, and, and on the page, that just doesn't seem like very long at all. You know, when we look at the disciples' lives as they walk through their lives and live their lives, they, uh, we see just, just a small portion of a book and we're thinking that you know this all happened in a week all happened in a few days but this is actually over the course of of tens of years as far as the Paul's concerned and and we look at different things we're going to look at some uh, uh Joseph's life today here in a little while and we're going to look at everything that happened in his life and it happened in just a a few chapters but it actually happened over the course of of I think it's something like 22 years of his life and we see it in these short chunks you know, and I, I look at, at our, our uh, path that Michelle and I have walked in, in planning this church and getting this off the road. It was, it was in 2003 that I, I decided to give my, my life to God and tell him that this, I said, God, this is what I want to do. This is, this is, uh, this is it. I'm, I'm giving my life to you. I don't know what you want me to do, but what is it? And I, I went and talked to my pastor and he said, you're going to be a preacher. And that was in 2003. So 10 years ago, uh, maybe 2004, when did we get married? 2003? 2003 we got married. So yeah, 2003. 2004. She doesn't know. That's why she's looking at me silly. <laughs> See? So I think it was 2004 that, that uh, I was told that. So anyway. Huh? No, that was when we finally decided to stop arguing with God. Anyway, argue with God for a while, and, and we, we, we get on board, and, and we're going to do it. And then we start talking about planting probably... Five years ago, at least, and we're trying to get a Bible study going, and nothing's happening. And Vinny knows he was up here, and we're trying to do a Bible study. And every now and then, we get a visitor to come, and they'd not come back again. And and uh, and it was tough. We'd do outreaches, and it's like nothing is happening. And and it felt like we were just you know boxing in the air and doing nothing. And it's like God, what is going on? You put this vision in our heart. You put this, and nothing's happening. And then you begin to, to question yourself, well, maybe that's not what God told me. Or you begin to, to wonder, what am I doing wrong? What's going on? But, you know, there was, uh, uh, thankfully, there's some men that spoke in my life. One that, that stands out the most to me was Pastor Andy Elms was speaking prophetically into my life. And he said that, uh, 
you know, you feel like you're running in place, but I want you to know that God says you're not running in place. He's running beside you, training you and getting you prepared for what's to come. And I thank God for those things to help me remember that, yeah, this is, this is, a, this is a, a race. It's not happening in God's timing. And, and as you can see today, uh, as far as church plans goes, we are incredibly successful. To have five families just three months in that are regularly attending is, is phenomenal. We were talking to some pastors um, in California and their praise chapel church plants that have been going for for a year, two years. They actually have storefronts. They have buildings, not even in someone's home. And they don't have the, the, the success that we're having right now. So, And it's not anything that, that we've done. It's not God is moving right now. We're just along for the ride. And I, I don't want to, to come across as that we got something figured out and they don't. But we just happen to be, uh, God's just having favor on us and blessing us. But you know, there was, there was some time, we went through some rough stuff. We talked about Punny and Casa Grande, and that fell through. We were looking at all these different things, and, and it's like nothing was working. But just to know is, is you stand firm, and you don't give up, and God will fulfill his word in your life. So the first scripture that I want to look at today is Matthew seven twenty four through 27. It says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was it fall. So there's a couple things we need to, to, to notice here is that one, Everyone who hears these words, everyone who hears these words, everyone is hearing the same promise in this situation. These two, the two men that are being talked about, they heard the words. So what is the big difference between these two men? It says, everyone who hears these words of men and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. If you hear the words of God and it takes root in your heart and you actually begin to step out in faith and believe in them and act on them, then that's when you begin to build your foundation, your house on a foundation of rock. And then it says, everyone who hears these words, and how many know that there's a lot of people that have heard about Jesus, and they're choosing to ignore him. They're choosing to, to believe that uh, he's, he was just a good man. Some believe he doesn't even exist, but they, they don't receive Jesus as who he says he was. They've heard the words, but they're not acting on them. And then it says, the rain fell and the floods came. Again, the person that built his house on a rock and he acted on the words of God and the same man who did not act on them, the rain fell and the floods came on both of them. You know, as we walk through this life, our journey of life, rain's going to fall, floods are going to come. Being a Christian, and I know you've heard me say it before, but being a Christian does not mean that everything is going to go perfect. Everything is going to go just hunky-dory from here on out. The truth is, when you get saved, you're going to face stuff that you probably never would have faced had you not been saved. You're going to face persecution. You're going to face the enemy coming against you because when you're doing something for the kingdom of God, then you're a threat. You're a target of the enemy. When you're doing something for the kingdom of the enemy, why is he going to do anything to make you stop? But the rain and the flood is going to come to both of us those who hear God's word and act on it, and those who don't. So the question is, what is your house built on? What is your foundation? Is it sand? Is it on the, the words of this world, the promises of this world, get a good job, the American dream, you know, all that stuff? Or is your, is your foundation built on the promise of God, the word of God? Because the truth is, it's going to come and it's going to be tested. And the only way your house is going to stand when the storm is done is if it's built on the Word of God, that foundation of solid rock. And then in Ephesians 6, 10 through 17, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, stand firm. Having done everything to stand firm, then what's he tell you to do? Stand firm, therefore. Having girded your loins with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which 
you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The truth of the matter is the Christian life is a battleground. It's not a playground. We are in, a, in spiritual warfare with an enemy who has already been defeated. So all he can do is drag people down with him. And that's his goal. And he's trying to drag you down with him. He's trying to make you not believe in the promises of God so that way you'll get wrapped up and sucked down with him. And it says that we are standing firm against the schemes of the devil. And the devil actually means the accuser. That's what the, what the devil means. Is He's the one who accuses God's elect. But the Bible says, who can accuse God's elect because of what he's done inside of us? The, the Satan actually means adversary when it's translated. Satan is, you know, the devil is just one standing against God and standing against his people. So that's where we find out here. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our struggle is not against men. You know, I think a lot of times we look out in the world and we see men doing terrible things and we think that we have to, to stop them. But we don't have to stop these men. We just have to get them Jesus because it's the devil working in their lives. It's the enemy in, the, in this world working in their lives. And it says that but our, it's against rulers, against powers, against world forces of darkness. So there's rulers of darkness, there's powers of darkness, there's world forces of darkness, and spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. They're, that's what we're battling against. It's the enemy trying to drag people down with him. He can't win. The enemy has permanently been defeated. He can't win. All he can do is, like the saying goes, misery loves company. All he can do is bring people with him. And that's if they don't stand on the word of God. So how do we stand firm? Because I love what this says here. So we're able to stand firm. We do everything. Uh, we take up the full armor of God to be able to resist in the evil day and of having done everything to stand firm. So that's, that's our responsibility. We spend time in the Word. We learn who we are. We learn what God says about us. We prepare ourselves. And having done everything to stand firm, continue to stand firm. Things are going bad. Things seem like they're falling apart around you. Stand firm. Seems like that the promises of God aren't coming true and, and you're, you're, you're having troubles at your job and you're having trouble financially. Stand firm. Keep standing on the Word of God. And how do we stand firm? Well, it tells us having girded up your loins with truth. You know, to, to gird is to actually to, to put like a belt around to hold something on to pull up. But as an idiom, we use it as an idiom to say... Uh, uh, it's to prepare oneself for something requiring strength or endurance. You know, this, this life that we live is going to require some strength and endurance, and we, we do that by girding our loins with truth. The truth of the Word of God is what prepares us for this long race that we're running. And then it says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. You know, when Paul's using this metaphor here because everyone would have been familiar with it back then. This, this whole armor of God is the Roman soldiers of the day. This is all the pieces of their armor that he's talking about and comparing God's uh, uh, power to. And he's saying the breastplate of righteousness. And, and the, Romans, the Romans wore a breastplate that covered them from their neck to their waist completely front and back. Either it was plates of armor or it was chain mail, but it completely protected them their entire body, front, back, from neck to waist. And that's what he's saying here. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. This is something that completely covers you and it protects you. And what is the breastplate of righteousness? The breastplate of righteousness is knowing that you are righteous in Jesus Christ. Knowing that when you put that on, that's having that faith and confidence that you've been made pure and clean. So when the devil comes and he accuses you, like we said, Satan is the accuser. And he says, you're not righteous. I know what you did. You can say, in Jesus Christ I am righteousness, not based on my works, but based on his work. Amen? And it says, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And this is a weird one to me. I'm, I'm like wondering, what is that is? So I started doing, looking at what the, the, the he's using this, this metaphor. And Roman soldiers wore shoes with nails, uh, hobnails stuck through them. So they'd have kind of like cleats today. So they'd have a better grip. So they couldn't be pushed over or pushed around. And when we shot our feet with a preparation of gospel of peace, it's like putting those nails in so we have a good grip. But we can't be pushed around. And we can offer that peace that only the gospel can do that the only the gospel can provide so we can stand or or withstand like I said to stand firm with that good grip of the shoes of the gospel we can bring peace and have peace even though the enemy desires only war and destruction amen and then it says 
in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, which which you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. It's like we've said before, you take up that shield of faith, and faith is believing God is who he says he was, and that he'll do what he says he'll do. And when the enemy begins to throw fiery darts at you, by faith, you can tell them to, to, to stand down. It's like when we speak to that mountain. You know, when you have a mountain in your life, you don't tell your, your, your God about your mountain, but you tell your mountain about your God. You stand with faith, faith in him. And that's that shield of faith. And finally, the helmet of salvation. Sorry, not finally. Second to finally. The helmet of salvation is what covers your head. You know, the helmet is, is uh, you know, you can talk to my wife about people that ride motorcycles and what saves their lives when they get into a bad accident is their helmet. If you want to kill something, you know, what's the, the old idiom? You, you, you cut off the head when you want to kill something. You know, the, the devil is coming for your head. But it's this helmet of salvation that protects it. This helmet of salvation protects our life because in Christ we are saved. And finally, it says the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Our weapon is the Word of God. It always is. When, when the enemy's coming at you, you fight back with the Word of God. When he says, you're defeated, you say, no, I am victorious in Christ. When he says, you can't do that, you say, no, I can do that with Christ who strengthens me. When he says, you are sick, you say, no, I am healed by the blood of the Lamb. By his stripes I am made whole. As the enemy comes at you, you fight back with the word of God. Just like Jesus, when he was in the desert, every time the devil came at him, he fought back with the word of God. He always replied with the word of God. And that's why it's our sword. That's why it is what we can fight back with. Amen? So let's go ahead and, uh, as we look at somebody who had to stand firm for a long time, let's go ahead and look at the life of Joseph. In Genesis 37, 2-4, it says, These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. And just so there, in case you're confused, Israel is, is what God called Jacob. So when Israel, Jacob, same person. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. And so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. So now we have Joseph. He's a young man. And... Uh, 17 years old, and the first thing we see about Joseph is that he's a servant. He's serving his father. He's out in the, in the fields with his father. And then we also begin to see that there's some integrity in his life because his, his brothers are out there just doing dumb stuff, and we don't know exactly what they're doing. And, you know, when we look at Joseph, we see his life. He doesn't seem, he's not a petty person, so they're not out, I mean, they're probably doing something pretty serious. And, and Joseph has some integrity, and he's letting his father know what's going on. So now he's got two strikes against him. Because how, how many of you guys are, are got brothers and sisters? I think everybody here has got brothers and sisters, right? Did you ever feel like one of your brothers and sisters were your, was the favorite kid and you were just being left out? No, I, I, I think most of us have felt that in some way. Uh, but the truth is, the, the problem with that is, is that when we saw that, I would say that almost all the time, the person that you thought was the favorite is not actually the favorite. It's in our head we begin to, why is he getting that? Why am I not getting this? Why is he being treated better? But we always remember how they're being treated better, we're treated worse. But we don't ever, the times where maybe we got treated something better and they got worse, we don't think about those. So all, we, all we start you know, piling up in this checklist is all the bad stuff. And, and we begin to say, oh, they love them more. But the truth is, it never was actually the truth. It was all in our head. What we find out in this story is that when his brothers were like, man, dad loves Joseph more, it was the truth. <laughs> you know, this guy, he, it was, Joseph was, was, had him when he was really old, and he's lavishing gifts on him in this, this very colored tunic, you know, in all the kids' books you see it as this brightly patched garment. Might even be better translated as just an ornate robe. It was just, it was, you know, Joseph's a shepherd, and dad's given him what would have been the robe of a king, you know, royalty. And 
his brothers are seeing this. And, and the Bible says, now Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. This wasn't perceived. This was a fact that Joseph loved. So he's got that strike against him. And then on top of that, because of his integrity and he's telling his dad what's going on and who knows, maybe there was a little petty jealousy there and, you know, tattletaling. I don't know. Quit asking me these questions. It doesn't say it here. So it says, it says his brothers hated him. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even talk to him on friendly terms. All they did was tear him down. And uh, so that's where Joseph's life starts. So then he begins, he has a vision. God speaks to him. It says in Genesis 37, 5 through 11, it says, Then Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now he had still another dream and related it to his brothers and says, Lo, I have had still another dream and behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So now we have Joseph. He has a vision. And I imagine what's going on here. And as he has this vision, he's like, man, all my brothers hate me, but I just had this vision from God. God's telling me that I'm going to rule over them. So in this case, he has a vision. He probably should have kept it to himself. This isn't probably not the kind of vision you need to go around and start pointing fingers. But what's he do? He starts, he starts prodding his brothers. He says, I'm going to rule over you. Nah, 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 nah. Basically, I think is what's going on here. And uh, so he does this, and now his brothers hate him even more. So God's got a vision planned for his life that promises him through this vision, and, and now his brothers hate him. And then even his father, who loves him more than all his sons, rebukes him and says, really? You know, even his father doesn't know what's going on. <clears throat> so the question I ask you is, has God promised you anything in your life? Have you... Uh, uh, have you had anything where you feel God's speaking to you in your life and giving you a vision? And I want you to think about now, does God have a plan for your life? And I want you to know God does have a plan for your life, even if he hasn't given you a specific uh, plan. You see the promises in the Bible. God wants you to prosper. God wants you to be healed and whole. God wants to use you to build up his church. And so God does have a promise and vision for your life. And I want you to think about that. Now, what does God talk to you in your life? And what does that mean for you? But then we see here, so we know that God's called him. And I think when we think that God has a call in our life, sometimes we think that it's just going to bang happen. Everything's going to go perfectly. We're not going to have any opposition. And, and that's what we have here in Joseph's life. Joseph is given this vision of God that he's going to rule over his, his brothers and, and mother and, and sisters. And since you've got a call of God, it should all be downhill from here, right? God put a call on your life, and it should just be smooth sailing. Let's go ahead and take a look at his life and see what actually happens. Genesis 37, 18 through 20. It says, When they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. It's a little backstory. This is his brothers are out in the field taking care of the sheep again. And his dad says, Hey, will you go check on your brothers? Go, go see how they're doing and come back and let me know and make sure everything's okay. And uh, it says, when they saw him from a distance in chapter, or chapter 37, verse 18, and before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. His vision, his dream from God, his, his promise from God is getting him in trouble. It says, now then come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. And we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what will become of his dreams. So now the brothers are like, yeah, you, you want to get a little cocky with us. Let's, yeah, we're just going to kill you and take care of that. If you're dead, you can't rule over us. Now, these guys, this Joseph has a vision from God, probably was not wise with how he told everybody about it, but now the brothers want to kill him. So thank God Reuben, one of his older brothers, says, hey, let's not kill him. I mean, that's, it's not good that we should kill our own flesh and blood. So... <clears throat> Reuben says, you know what, let's not kill him. Let's just, let's just put him in a pit for now. We're just going to, to hold him for a second. 
And then it's in Genesis 37, 25 through 28, just five chapters later, or some verses later, it says, Then they sat down to eat a meal, and as they raised their eyes, looked, behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead, and with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh, and on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? So now Reuben's talked to him, and like, you're right. There's no profit if we just kill him. So let's come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up and lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. I mean, that's pretty rough going. God's got a call in his life. He's like, man, God's telling me something great. And it gets him sold to some, some slave traders. I mean, Egypt, or he gets sold to, to these, these traders, and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. And they're like, wait a minute, I just saw he had a vision from God. What's going on here? You know, when you have God's call in your life, it doesn't mean everything's going to go perfect. And, I mean, how many of you guys had brothers and sisters that hated you so much that they wanted to kill you? Or just so they don't kill you, like they think they're, they think they're getting away with it. Like, well, it won't be quite as bad if we just sell them into slavery. You know, so they, they sell him. I mean, that's pretty rough going. I can't, I can't imagine having my brothers and sisters hate me that much. And then on top of that, I mean, Joseph has got to be thinking, how can this be happening? I mean, have you ever sat down when things are going bad? God, why is this happening to me? So we go a little bit further and, and uh, skip a couple chapters. And now Joseph is in, in Egypt. And it says, Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph? He had just got thrown in, in, in uh, as a slaver. It doesn't seem like God's with Joseph. But the Bible said the Lord was with Joseph. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned and put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him, there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was a handsome and forming appearance. That's more important for the next verse we'll look at. But uh, so now Joseph gets sold as a, as, a, as a slave, but God's still with him. You know, the, the truth is that, that in Romans 8.28 it says that all things work together of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. You know, the devil meant something bad for Joseph, selling him into slavery. But God's like, you know what, I'll make it work out anyway. And God is still with Joseph. And something else you don't see that the scripture doesn't mention is Joseph never complains. Joseph never grumbles. He never whines about his brothers. And he never calls to God saying, Lord, why are you doing this to me? He still trusts God. He still believes God. He never lets what's happening to him change his thoughts towards God. And so we see that God is still working in the midst of this terrible situation. And not only is God with Joseph, but God is blessing Joseph so much that it's pouring out even on his Egyptian master, this Egyptian officer. So now Joseph is, as a slave, is living pretty good. This guy's taking care of him. So all right, well, maybe now this vision is starting to work out. This being called by God is starting to pay off. So we'll keep on reading. And then in Genesis 39, 6 through 12, this is uh, the last uh, verse of the script on the, the last slide. And it says, So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything, anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. Now here's where this is going to pay off. It came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns at my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withhold nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. 
Now it happened one day that he went into her house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. So wait a minute. Joseph's being blessed again. We're in, we're in favor, and now trouble comes one more time. In this case, Joseph is doing absolutely nothing wrong. He's actually being upright. He's saying, no, how could I sin against God and, and do this to my master? So she's grabbing onto his clothes, trying to hold him and pull him in. So, you know, he just throws the jacket off, bolts outside. And, uh, I mean, he's going through some tough stuff. I mean, this, I, once again, I can't imagine being Joseph going, God, why are you letting this happen to me? I mean, I'm, I'm living right. I'm worshiping you. I'm honoring you. I'm doing the right things. Even in this manner, I said, no, I'm not going to lie with you. But, you know, why, why is this lady coming after me? Why is she trying to get me to do these things? You know, if you're living for God, regardless of your situation, the enemy is going to keep on attacking you. Matter of fact, the more you're living for God, the more the enemy is going to want to attack you. And if you're coming up against struggles, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing anything wrong. Have you ever felt like maybe this is happening to me because I'm, I'm not doing this or I am doing this? I mean, as far as we know, as far as the scripture records, Joseph is living an upright life, but still stuff is coming against him. And to be honest with you, if you're not having any struggles in your life, if, you're, if your faith isn't being tested, it could very well be that you're walking the same direction as the devil instead of against him. You know, when you're walking a different direction than the devil, he's going to run into you. But if you're walking in the same direction as him, there's no resistance at all. So we'll keep reading the story. In, in chapter Genesis 39, 19 through 23, it says, Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So what happened here is... is is uh, between these two, two uh, sets of scripture is she pulled the garment off and when he took off, she gets ticked. And she's like, you know what? If he's not going to sleep with me, I'm just going to tell, tell my husband that he came in here and took his clothes off and tried to take advantage of me. So she lies to her husband and basically says, Joseph tried to, tried to rape me. And when uh, someone came in, I yelled and he got scared and he ran off and he left his garment here. And we know that that's not what happened. But, man, Joseph's living, trying to do the right thing, and now the enemy is just, just plucking at him, just throwing these fiery darts. So then it says, and when his master heard the words of his wife, her lies, it says, which she, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him in the jail, a place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. So now Joseph's thrown back in jail got a call of God on his life, a vision of great things, and it's like his life just keeps going downhill. You know, it's going down, gets a little bit better, and goes down, and now he's in jail. But it says, but the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. God is still with Joseph, even though he's going through these things. And, the, and it says that, uh, and he gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer, and the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. So that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. And the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So now he's in jail and, and God's still blessing him. And I know I, at this time, I'd be like, all right, I can, I can put up with being sold into slavery, but at least things were right. But now I'm behind bars. God, why is this happening to me? What have I done? You know, you begin to run through all these things that you could have done. But the truth is that if God is for us, who can be against us? There's nothing the enemy can do that will tear you down completely if you'll just continue to trust in him. And then once again, we find that even though he was thrown in jail, things are working out good again. Matter of fact, the blessing is now overflowing into the jailer's house. So the next thing that happens is before, these are over the next couple chapters, we find Joseph in jail. And the couple other guys get thrown in jail with them. It's the, the royal chief cupbearer and the chief baker get thrown in jail, and they have dreams. And the, the, chief, uh, the chief baker has a, or the chief cupbearer has a dream that he sees a, a vine with three branches on it with, with grapes on it, and he is holding Pharaoh's cup, and he squeezes the grapes into Pharaoh's cup, and he gives them to Pharaoh. And Joseph says, well, God's telling me that, that uh, what this means is that in three days you're going to be pulled out of prison and you'll be restored to your position. And then uh, three days later, sure enough, he's restored to his position and he forgets all about Joseph. 
Then there's the chief baker comes in and he says, I have a dream that I've, I've got three baskets of grain or bread on my hair and head and the, the birds keep coming down and stealing all the bread and stealing it away. And Joseph says, well, what this means in three days, the Pharaoh's going to have you beheaded. And uh, the, the basket for represent days. And sure enough, that comes to pass. So sometime later, uh, the Pharaoh has this dream. And he has the, the vision, if you remember the vision, he has the vision of the seven fat cows that come out of the, the, the river and then seven skin, skinny cows come out of the river and eat the fat cows. And then he has the vision of the, the seven grains of wheat, heads of wheat that are big and robust, good grains of wheat. And then seven sun-scorched grains of wheat come out and eat all of the good wheat. And none of the magicians, none of the Pharaoh's men can answer this vision. And the cupbearer all of a sudden remembers Joseph there in prison, still in jail. He says, you know what? I, uh, I, a guy was, was answered me true the vision that I had. His God interpreted, interpreted this dream. So they send for, for Joseph. In Genesis 41, 14 through 16, it says, Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I like what Joseph did here. He doesn't take the claim for what he's doing. He says, It's not me. It's God. I know in my life, I have a tendency when things are going well and God's moving in my life. If I'm not careful, I have a tendency to think about how great I'm doing. But Joseph, you know, he, he, he understands that it's God at work in his life. And, and I understand that as well, except for I just got to make sure I'm not being crazy. Every now and then I got to, you know, just have a quick check in my heart. Like, you know what? It's not you. It's God doing this thing. You know, when, when we begin to hear how successful we're doing here, it's real easy for me to go, look how awesome I'm doing. But it's not me. It's God. And I have to remember that. But Joseph... I mean, he loved God. He was, he, was, he was following God and honoring him. And he says, it's not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So he interprets the dream. You remember he said that the seven, the seven fat cows or the, and the seven grains, uh, big grains, the fat grains, those are seven years of plenty. And then the seven skinny cows or the seven scun-scorched uh, grains of wheat, those are actually uh, seven years of famine that are going to be so terrible, they're going to eat up everything from the first seven years. So Joseph says... Uh, well, okay, then what we need to do is what I recommend you do is find a wise man who will take and manage all of the seven years of plenty so you'll have plenty to get through the famine. So in 41, 38 through 42, we hear, Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom there is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it in Joseph's hand and clothed them in garments of fine linen and put the golden necklace around his neck. You know that putting the signet ring on Joseph's hand was basically, they used signet rings as signatures back then. They'd put the piece of wax down and imprint that ring. And basically, if that, that signature was there, it was as good as from the Pharaoh. Joseph had the, the ability to speak as the Pharaoh, I mean, Joseph went from brothers wanting to kill him, sold into slavery, doing pretty good, put in prison, doing pretty bad, and then just brought out here, and, and, and basically everything is lavished on him. We begin to, as we know, because we know the rest of the story, we begin to say, oh, now that call of God in his life is coming. Now we see, we see God moving. And, uh, but in our heads, we see this is, I think we started in, in chapter 36, or only five chapters later. You know, it's this little tiny split. And we're like, man, this is, this is all going great. But what we don't know, from him being sold into slavery at 17, he is now 30 here. Scholars tell us that he's 30 years old here. So it's been 13 years for all this to happen. How many of you have been waiting on something from God for 13 years? And this kind of stuff's happening. I mean, Joseph is standing firm. He's going to trust God no matter what happens. So then we find here in Genesis 42, 6 through 9, this dream, this vision that he's having being fulfilled. 
It says, now Joseph was the ruler over the land in verse 6. He was, the one who was so, he was the one who sold to all the people of the land, and Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. For he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. So now we have, I don't know what's going through Joseph's head. Ultimately, all the stuff that he does screwing with his brothers brings his whole family to, uh, to Egypt so he can see his dad and he can see his mom and he brings them all here to take care of them. And I don't know if Joseph is just screwing with him or what he's doing, what's going through. Yeah, you remember when you sold me into slavery? I'm going to poke at you guys a little bit. But this is, this is another nine years from when he, was, when he was put in charge of Pharaoh. This is probably two years into the famine. So seven years of good, two years of famine. That's another nine years. Joseph is almost 40 years old now, and the vision finally comes to pass. I mean, this is... Uh, 22 years for this to come to pass? I mean, that's a long time to wait for, for God's promise to come to fruition in your life. I mean, I come up on five minutes, and I'm like, didn't you say that, God? You know, I mean, but Joseph trusted God. And when we read the story, we find out that he doesn't hold a grudge against his brothers. He actually doesn't. He, all he's doing is to bring his whole family so he can see his family again. He doesn't treat them harshly. He doesn't throw them in prison. I mean, he's the most powerful man in Egypt, and he could have had his brothers killed. He could have done all the stuff that his brothers wanted to do to him. He could have returned the favor, but he doesn't. He restores them, and he puts them in nice clothes, and he feeds them, and he takes care of them, and he gives them land to, to raise their, their livestock. And he, he just loves his family. He loves them, and he doesn't hold a thing against them. He doesn't complain or grumble. And when we look at Joseph's life, this is, a, this is the life of a man that we should, we should look to with respect and, and be willing to emulate a guy who loved God so much. You know, and he's not the only one in the Bible. When I was when I was looking at this, I was like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna go through all these people's lives, and and after I started thinking about just doing Joseph's, as you see, we've already gone almost on 40 minutes now, 35 minutes. Can you imagine if I tried to do all these people's lives in one day? You guys got till five o'clock today? Maybe we can get into it. <laughs> we find that Abraham, same thing. God promises to make him a great nation, but then. What's happened? He has to leave his relatives. He has to leave everything behind. And then, so God says, you're going to be a great nation, but he doesn't have Isaac. He doesn't have a kid. He doesn't have a son Isaac that this promise is promised through for 25 years. Now, he's 75 years old when God says, leave your family, leave everything behind. I'm going to make you a great nation. At 75, God says, and he doesn't even have any kids. You know, just, we all know how... how Great nations come, right? Somebody has to have a baby so he can get moving forward. You know, there's got to be some, re some reproduction of people happening. But he doesn't have any kids. And then at 100 years old, he has Isaac. Can you imagine having a kid at 100 years old? Oh, that's crazy talk. And then God asks him to offer that son up. Can you imagine that? I mean, this guy stands firm for 25 years that God's going to bless him with a great nation. Isaac comes. And then they, the scholars say that uh, Isaac was probably between 17 and 20 at this time. And uh, 20 years with his son, and then, and then God says, you know, now we need to offer him as a sacrifice. And he does it. Well, he doesn't actually do it, but he's willing to do it. God, at the very last moment, says, no, I see that you are willing to give up even your son. Because Abraham, we'll find out in Hebrews that, that uh, uh, Paul says that Abraham trusted that, if, that God could uh, even raise his son from the dead. So he was just going to trust God. And he stood firm for 25 years. And then we see Noah. This one, uh, this guy just amazes me. Because... First off, uh, 
creation, creationist uh, science, when they look at how the world was before the flood, one of the theories that they say is that, that it actually didn't rain. There was just this, this uh, vapor cloud all around the earth, and that's how everything got moisture was through the air. It actually, there was no rain. No one, I mean, it talks about the first rainbow. No one saw a rainbow because it never rained before the flood. I mean, no one knew anything about rain. No one knew about this stuff. And now Noah's like, so guys, we need to build a boat because it's going to start raining. It's going to do what? Wait, what's, and he's trying to describe what's going to happen. And they all think he's crazy. Well, he preaches for a ton and 20 years. Can you imagine that? And guess how many people got saved under his ministry? Not a single one. His family, that was it, came with him. Everybody else died. 120 years. And can you imagine while he's building this, never seen rain before, he's just trusting God. And he's building this boat. And he's like, all right, God, you said this flood was coming. Where is it at? Where is it at? You know, after maybe 60 years, you think you'd be like, maybe I heard him wrong. Maybe that's not what he meant. Finally, after 120 years of Noah standing firm. And then Moses. Moses was uh, snuck into the Pharaoh's court. He was raised by the Pharaoh's daughter. And uh, he was living a plush life. He was living it good. And then he sees... Uh, an Israelite and, uh, and uh, an Egyptian fighting, and he kills the Egyptian. So he, he begins, he has to get out of, get out of town because he knows he's killed an Egyptian. He leaves his whole life to protect his brothers. And then he sees two Israelites fighting, two Jews fighting. He's like, why are you guys fighting? And instead of understanding that he's trying to help them, they begin to ridicule him saying, what, are you just going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? You know, this, he just wants, he's willing to leave everything he has for his people and they ridicule him. So then he runs off into the desert. God comes to him and says, hey, I want you to go be a leader of these people. And he's like, but they don't like me. They've already told me they don't want me. They ridiculed me when I wanted to come. And on top of that, I stutter. I can't even speak. And God says, I am with you. I'll give you the things to say. And he brings his brother Aaron to speak for him. And then, so he, he rescues everybody from Egypt, finally, after all this stuff. And they put him in the desert and he never makes it to the promised land. Forty years he wanders in the desert and ends up dying, only seeing it. He looks at it, he sees it, but he doesn't make it in. Matter of fact, he doesn't even get God's promise in his life before he dies. Now thank God he was always looking forward to, to Jesus. And, and now that Jesus has paid the price, he gets to have eternal, eternal hope and eternal glory. But, I mean, this guy stood firm and never got what he was promised. And ultimately it was his own fault, but... If you know the story of him, God being angry and hitting the rock twice, and that's why he couldn't make it in. But he always stood for God. David is another one. David gets promised, uh, gets anointed to be king when he's 16 or 17 years old out in the field. And he doesn't actually be, he's not actually made king until 15 years later. And in the meantime, the current king is constantly trying to kill him. Like, how do you, how do you, maybe God didn't want me to be king because the king keeps trying to kill me. Maybe this doesn't, you know, do you ever second guess what's going on? And I thank God I've never had to, some of the time frames, these people trusted God and waited for God blows my mind because I thank God at this point I haven't had to wait that long for a move of God. But, uh, and then Paul, this guy, first off, he's killing all the Christians. And then Jesus says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And he just turns his life around. So now he's being persecuted by the Jewish leaders because they're like, what are you doing? But then we find out that in order to preach the gospel, he gets shipwrecked three different times. He was stranded out in sea for a while. He was stoned once, so much so that they thought he was dead and left him. And we don't know if, if God healed him or if they just didn't, he just so close to death they didn't realize it. He got 39 lashes three times. I mean, have you ever gone through that kind of difficulty for God's call on your life? I know I haven't. Not even close. I'm like, there for a while I had to drive 45 minutes to church and I thought it was awful. This guy is getting beat, you know. It's, these men of the Bible stood firm. And I, what I think that we can learn the most from it is, is that when we're going through tough times, if we'll stand firm, God will be faithful. 
if we'll just stand firm, if, if rough times are coming against you, it doesn't mean that you're failing or you've done something wrong necessarily. It doesn't mean if you are living for God and you're walking out that walk and stuff's coming against you, that doesn't mean that God's not moving in your life. It just may mean you have to get through these, these circumstances and God will come through on his word because he is faithful, as we've seen in the lives of all these great men of the Bible. In Romans 5, 1 through 5, it says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace. peace. We have peace. I almost made it. I got one more slide. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings perseverance. Perseverance, proven character. Proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within us, our hearts, through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You know, I thank God that we know we can be justified because of our faith. And we can have peace knowing that we're justified by faith, not by works, not by anything we've done. Because if it was by the stuff that we've done, we'd never make it. And we all know that. And that's what scares us about it. But by faith, we can. And then by faith, we are introduced into the grace into which we stand. And then he says something funny. We exalt in our tribulations. How many in here has ever been like, yes, I lost my job. This is awesome. I got in a car accident. I mean, this is we exalt in our tribulations. And it's not the tribulation we're exalting in, but it's what happens to us through these things. He says that knowing that tribulation brings perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. You know, when we work out, when we go to the gym and we start lifting weights, the reason that works is because we're providing resistance. Your muscles cannot grow if you have no resistance. Matter of fact, astronauts, when they go into space, their muscles atrophy and actually become weaker and actually, because they have not even the resistance of gravity walking around. You know, and it's, we need resistance in our life to grow. And that's what these tribulations are. You know, we're not going to need faith in heaven. Because there is no pain in heaven. There's no hurt in heaven. There's no resistance in heaven. But right now, we need that faith. And right now, when we come against circumstances, our faith is tested and it grows. And as the enemy begins to fling tougher darts and tougher circumstances, as our faith has been strengthened before, we can handle anything that he throws at us. You know, and it says that, that we persevere in these, these uh, tribulations, and that builds character in us. And that character, that character is that when we stand on God, no matter what, it's no longer, at some point it becomes not a choice, but like muscle memory, faith memory. You trust God no matter what's happening. That proven character, and that gives us hope, a hope that does not disappoint. That's that, that hope of, of the love of God being poured out on us, and we trust in Him. And I thank God that we can know because God's word is true that it will not disappoint that hope that we have in him. And finally, and we've looked at the scripture before here, but uh, Hebrews 6, 11 through 12 says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish. Other scriptures say so you'll not be lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. You know, the only way to realize the full assurance of hope is to, to just keep moving forward, to keep trusting God. Having done all to stand, stand firm therefore. And we realize the full assurance of his hope is if we'll be diligent. If we keep moving forward, the realization of the full assurance of his hope will be realized in our, in our life and we'll begin to see that. And it says, so that you will not be sluggish, that you'll not be lazy, that you'll keep moving forward trusting God, that you won't let your faith fall but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Paul's saying imitate us that through faith and patience inherit the promise. And he's talking about this, the, the faith chapters before this, and he's, he says through all these men, we just looked at all those men of the Bible who through faith, trusting God, inherited their promise. So let's not give up. Let's not give in no matter what comes against us. Let's continue to stand firm knowing that God can be trusted, knowing that we can put our hope and faith in him. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and bow our heads.